Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Kind. Make It Kind. M-I-P. With Masamela Mafumo. Mark Thompson. Make It Kind. Get Woke. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Make It Plain. And joined here by two friends. Uh, we'll get their reaction to a number of things, but we're going to talk primarily about a piece they co-authored. Uh, on Kingian democratic socialism. Uh, before we do that, I think we'd all do well first. I want to kind of get their thoughts about the latest. There's been another police killing in Minneapolis while this trial is taking place. First of all, my guests today are uh, Kai Newkirk uh, and the Reverend Stephen A. Green, both uh, my comrades and brothers in the struggle. Kai, um, is the founder of For All, a center for nonviolent action to advance fusion, a fusion progressive agenda. And he led the 2016 Democracy Spring Campaign, one of the largest American civil disobedience actions of this century. You all remember Democracy Spring. My brother uh, uh, in ministry is also here, the Reverend Stephen A. Green. He's a social justice pastor at Greater Allen AME Cathedral of New York and chair of faith for black lives welcome uh to you both and speaking of black lives Stephen, let me begin with you what, what are your thoughts about this trial and now there's another but there have been several police killings but one even in this minneapolis in the same doggone city while the trial is going on what, what are your thoughts about that well i think you know thank you mark for having us or mark for having us and it's good to be with kai as well uh what we're seeing is that the incident that happened with George Floyd is not isolated. And I think that what this this moment is trying to continue to unravel for us, all the way from our <laughs> army brothers 
who was assaulted by police. Um, and the video came out this week to even the case yesterday with our dear brother Dante, is that we're literally at war for black lives in this country to affirm the dignity of all persons. And police and state sanctioned violence is almost inherent to the American culture. And when we talk about you know whether or not Derek Chauvin will be held uh, responsible for the murder of, of George Floyd, we must also talk about the system that must be held responsible for continuing to perpetuate these heinous acts of, around black life in this country. Kai, your thoughts about this latest incident, and Kai, let me ask you this too, knowing the enormous um, movement of reckoning we saw last summer, mm -hmm. even with white citizens and around the world, mm -hmm. I mean, people around the world were mobilizing, people around the world are watching this trial. Can, can America um, afford can this country afford for Derek Chauvin not to be found guilty? I would say no. I mean, not unless we want to just see the profound generations of trauma laid upon uh, one another just become deeper and explode again. Um, and I I'm heartened by uh, this, the historic uprising of last summer. I think there's been a durable change in the culture. And mm -hmm. sometimes it takes time for that to play out in institutions. Um, but we're on that march now. Um, but I think people can't take anymore. Uh, and, and if uh, justice isn't done in, in this verdict, I think it's going to just deepen so much pain. Um, I haven't followed everything with the trial on a day-to-day -day basis. From what I've seen so far, I'm encouraged that there will be a guilty verdict. Um, but it seems like some of that has happened by contrasting Chauvin's actions from the department as a whole and their policy. And that may be helpful for bringing a guilty verdict and may be true, but in some ways it lets the Minneapolis Police Department off the hook and avoids having a, the deeper conversation within the context of the trial about the broader system of policing, uh, the carceral, carceral system in our country, um, the deeper uh, institutional and systemic racism that has to be confronted for us to move to a period of time in which something like uh, what's, what's happened outside of Minneapolis again, um, becomes uh, shocking and incredibly rare and hopefully non-existent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Stephen, do you think um, we're gonna win this case, win this trial? How, how are you feeling confident about this trial? I mean, the well, evidence is strong, but. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that the family of George Floyd is able to receive justice uh, in this case. But we know that true justice is not just about you know, an officer being convicted is we must really uh, end qualified immunity in this country, ban no not warrants, um, uh, create a system of policing, uh, police accountability in this country, which means that we should also be talking about focusing the attention in this case and even in the recent attack yesterday around actually federal legislation and Joe Manchin standing in the way of passing Justice and Policing Act. And we was really Put pressure on the Democrats who we, you know, who were elected and with the majority. You know, they 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 told us in November if we go back out in January and get Georgia, then we were going to have the majority to be able to see some legislation pass in this country, right. and we've yet to see it. And right. so I think this is a moment to really try to channel the energy towards actual legislation that would transform policing in this country and stop the tongue in cheek. Uh, it's time for thoughts and prayers. Yeah, and and. and the democracy or, or the majority that people fought for in Georgia is being undermined by one person, one doggone person. Now, um, 
I don't want to get too far off subject, but let me, let me just try to explain to people what's happening. Wednesday, this Wednesday, for the first time in history, there will be a markup of the reparations bill, H.R. 40, um, which means the next stop will be vote on the floor of the House. Stephen's going to help me get um, our senator brother to do his job in the Senate. <laughs> um, but also, speaking of what you're talking about, Stephen, also on Wednesday, the House Oversight Committee is going to mark up the D.C. statehood bill. The D.C. statehood bill is probably going to go to the floor the week of April 19th. And now Manchin has said he's somewhat favorable for, favorable to a statehood. If we get D.C. statehood, uh, Kai and Stephen, there's two senators, undoubtedly Democratic, most likely black. We ain't got to worry about this majority or this filibuster anymore. And then Manchin can just act like the fool he wants to act. In fact, it would be in his interest to vote for D.C. statehood so he can continue to play whatever his role is. He Nobody can understand in West Virginia, even because most people think he's not going to run for election. So nobody understands what he's doing. But if we get statehood, see, see all never stops. We thought we had what we needed in Georgia from January. That's not enough. So we got to get statehood to make even the Georgia piece work. So I just want to put that out there to people. We won't get a vote on the reparations bill till probably this summer. But next week, um, now, if Manchin blocks statehood, then three of us might need to make a little run down to West Virginia. But anyway, uh, <laughs> let's let's get let's get to the point. And this this ties in because we got to talk about um, where we are um, as a people, as a community, as coalitions of organizations, as a progressive or left movement, um, um, whatever you want to call it. Kai, what other movement is there if it's not progressive? I mean, there's not a there's not a moderate movement. There's a as a ultra right wing white supremacist white nationalist movement. Mm -hmm. But on our side, the only movement I see is a progressive movement and a, a BLM movement, and the two complement each other and intersect. Hey man, you gotta you gotta give me a second though, because I'm living in Arizona now. So I gotta say this: not just Joe Manchin who's holding up things. In oh the yeah, Senate. oh my God, Kirsten yeah. Cinema, what's our up, senator. What is that? What's up with? Does she has she read the latest demographics of her own state? I'm not sure. I think she's got this idea about that she's kind of the sequel to John McCain's kind of maverick identification, challenging her party. But I think she's miscalculated terribly. Her polling has gone down since she gave the thumbs down on 15. Um, in such a flamboyant way since she's been talking publicly about blocking any change on the filibuster. She doesn't understand that the voters that elected her, like you say, need change. We want results now. And it's much more important to us that we have that than that we preserve these traditional Senate rules and procedures like the filibuster itself, a Jim Crow relic. So I'm yeah, from West Virginia. I understand the problem with Manchin, but she, it's not just him. Does she know Mark Kelly just won? <laughs> How could she not? And, and, and he's doing much better in the polls. And this whole idea that you have to be, you have to try to govern like her in order to win in Arizona. He's proven that wrong right now. We're going to reelect him. He needs to do better on some things, but he, he voted the right way on 15 and he signaled openness to reform on the filibuster if it continues to block progress. So can we, can we go, are we going to draft Erica to run for Senate in Arizona? Well, I wish we could. She's not a citizen yet, but uh, <laughs> it takes a couple of years after marriage, but it could move uh, faster if we pass the Dream Act. So we'll see. OK, 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 OK. More MIP after this message. No, you're right. Uh, um, um, 
you're right. She she's a problem too. Um, so we gotta figure that one out. But but in any event, th those two characters aside, I mean, the the any movement toward holding the government accountable, corporations accountable, our own Democratic Party accountable, is is the progressive movement. Correct. That's what I see. Uh, that's not there's not much of a culture of building movements and organizing as movements outside of the progressive left in our country, although you point out on the on the far right, that is the case. But that's not that's not going to get anything done for us. So that's not our focus at the moment. You all, uh, Stephen, Reverend Stephen, post uh, uh, wrote a piece um, at wagingnonviolence.org, folks, why King in democratic socialism is the best path forward for the progressive left. So um, this was published on the anniversary of Dr. King's martyrdom just uh, last week, was also was, which also was Easter Sunday. So, <clears throat> Reverend Stevens, some people haven't quite put together Dr. King and socialism. So, mm -hmm. so let's, let's help folk with that, first of all. Sure, I think when we talk about socialism, you know, um, we have allowed this word to be co-opted by, you know, the, the CIA's mentality to try to de de dismantle the movement. But black social gospel or socialism is inherently rooted in the black social gospel tradition, all the way from Reverdy Cash's Ransom and uh, other uh, black social gospel leaders who help, you know, transform um, life post um, reconstruction, right? In, in settlement houses in Chicago and in institutional church, um, and, and also in New York City. So, you know, I think I think when we talk about Dr. King's ties, Dr. King is a part of a long lineage of African American religious leaders who are tied to the social gospel that infuses their the, their political ideology. So, so Dr. King is a is a is a democratic socialist who agrees that democracy in and, in and of itself is it should be social it must contend uh, it, it must it, it contends that it must be engaged in and in, in not just um, access to voting but also in ensuring that there's a quality of life education uh, and, and so you see this in this poor people's campaign that is it's about you know not just on the hill you know on the, on the backs of the of, the, of, of a in a year that it was actually, you know, a presidential election. People forget that in 1968, they were going to a presidential election trying to figure out who was going to come after LBJ. And Dr. King infuses civic engagement with, with a policy agenda, an issue-based agenda of economic uh, justice. And I think that when we talk about Dr. King, we they, they try to silo Dr. King in 1963, 1964, but Dr. King's actual you know, fullness of his political ideology emerges out of his his, his stance of economic justice, racial justice, and transformative uh, 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 political justice that all intersect together. Uh, Kai, um, it is do those in the democratic socialist movement um, uh, embrace Dr. King? Do they see him as a, a relevant symbol in that movement today? I think some do. I'm not sure everyone is focused on uh, on on him as as someone who's really kind of setting the standard and creating the legacy that uh, democratic socialists in general 
um, and those on the progressive left want to follow. And that's part of what we wanted to bring. I think with this piece, we're, we're trying to speak to a few different audiences at the same time. One is a, a general public, right, that often has only been taught about one king, which is a limited focus on his concern for racial justice, right? But they're not getting the full, broader social and political critique, which was concerned, yes, with capitalism. And also with militarism and empire, the, the giant triplets of evil that he talked about in the Poor People's Campaign. So we want to we wanna be one of the voices that's trying to lift up that fuller vision for the general public, but also want to speak to uh, some in the kind of in the world that's very focused on King's legacy, in particular Kingy and nonviolence. It's a, a wonderful tradition developed by Dr. Bernard uh, Lafayette, uh, one of King's lieutenants, and David Jensen, that both Stephen and I have trained in. Um, but in our view, doesn't often bring in his broader political critique of institutions in our society and push people as much to do the particular kind of work that King is most remembered for, which if he had just given speeches, I don't think there'd be a monument, right? He used the power of nonviolent direct action to do these campaigns that confronted injustice in a powerful way, focused the attention of the nation on it, made it so that business as usual could no longer continue. We want political organizers to be doing that kind of work. And then thirdly, to folks who self-identify within this resurgent democratic socialist uh, tradition in our country coming out in large part of the Bernie Sanders campaigns, the growth of DSA, um, people like AOC and folks in the squad, right? There's this huge growth and to say, let's look at King and this incredible and complex fusion that he brought together, a tradition that we think can help us to build the multiracial progressive movement from the base up and as broadly inclusive as possible um, that can help us to win. And I think there's there's a push that King makes on, on us on the left, um, I think at times, which is to really, uh, there's, there's a range of them which we try to go through in the piece, but I think one is to, is to seek constant uh, constantly to be rooting our action and our critique in this ethic of universal, unconditional, compassionate love, which is a hard thing to do. And there's a place for righteous anger within that, but it enables us always to be pulling people towards higher ground and to be bringing people in and understand that the, whoever you are, whatever you thought in the past, whatever you did in the past, there's a place for you on the side of justice and the freedom struggle to join in and movement. And I think that sometimes the weight of trauma, the weight of pain, the weight of cynicism can close that door down. And King counsels us, we have to always keep it open. Um, uh, Kai, uh, Reverend Stephen mentioned um, the multiracial coalitional aspect of this. Um, and Stephen, let's face it, uh, you know, multiracialism is, is the goal. But when we talk about the African-American community, there are those who as I said, see Dr. King in one way, and especially the faith community in which we organize, they don't necessarily um, embrace socialism, although many do without realizing it. Right. Most, most, all, most of our movements, and Dr. King truly was a socialist, whether he used that terminology or not, let's face it, when he was on the earth, socialism was closely aligned with communism and nobody wanted, could afford to have that label without being taken out, and ultimately he was. Um, how, how easy will it be, Stephen, Reverend Stephen Green, to uh, marry um, the African-American liberation struggle rooted in the church to uh, a philosophy that we would call Kingian democratic socialism? I mean, let's be honest, brother, I can, I, I can name a few preachers you and I know by name. If we said that to them, they'd be like, what? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. 
so so tell us tell us how we mount that challenge no you raise a very pivotal question these buzzwords have created a level of resistance in our own communities and i think that you know we have to talk about the issues that ground this democratic socialism uh as the issues that connect with grandmothers uh in 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 our own pews in our own churches right like let's talk about what a guaranteed annual income looks like right and then we talk about but you have to really you know when you talk about democratic socialism you have to really uncover the layers of how the homestead act prevented ours prevented black folks from being able to literally be able to have access to quality housing in this country and the history of redlining right so these are all what i would call democratic socialist ideals and principles of guaranteed annual income job for all, housing for all, a Green New Deal, right? But having to communicate this as, as a restructuring of society, because that's in truly what a democratic socialist vision would, would cause for, for America to, to, to have to um, participate in is a truly restructuring of society. You're talking about childhood education. And we have to recognize, as Dr. King says, that, you know, the Homestead Act gave thousands of, of, of acres of land to white folks, right? And But we call it welfare when we try to do something of uh, the government benefits for, uh, for African-Americans in this country, entitlements for white folks, welfare for black folks. And I think that we have to literally break down the issues and we'll find commonality when we talk about the issues. And I think that's what we talk about with the democratic socialist community and the Kingian sort of faith-based organizing tradition, civil rights tradition that we're in, is that we're, we're trying to talk about the same principles, but we're not talking about the same, you know, pathway towards the principles and ideas. And I think that's where we have to really break down, you know, because, you know, I hear uh, some of the seasoned saints talking about, well, I had to pay for college. Why y'all want college for all when we don't recognize that that college now has been a part of this, 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 this capitalist industrial complex of student loans, right? That, that it literally weighs upon people as a, as a form of debt that that is a part of a, of a, of a, of a government fractured you know, fractured system that has not grown, you know, Pell Grants, you know, my parents went to school, you could take a Pell Grant and be able to afford your entire tuition and have money to live right. off of, right? Mm -hmm. Nowadays, the Pell Grants are not going to help you do anything in, in most, you know, public institutions. So we have to talk about expanding some of these concepts in ways that are palatable because we all want the same vision of a beloved community. But what is the policy agenda that articulates a beloved community? I think that's what democratic socialism will help us do. Yeah. Um, and, and Kai, you are right in the piece about the importance of the fusion, mm -hmm. the importance of democratic socialists and working class people um, coming together with the formidable African-American electorate. Um, and in order to get some of these things that we're talking about, in order to address climate change and minimum wage and all that, what you all written is not just some intellectual philosophical exercise that type of fusion is necessary and urgent for anybody to get anything in terms of what this democracy is supposed to be correct absolutely absolutely there's no way forward but together there's no other path to the change that we need but through a progressive left that can become not the junior partner, but the senior partner in the Democratic Party can become the leader of that and thus govern our nation through a period of transformation. There's no other pathway and there's no other way to do that but together. And that's what we're pushing people towards here. And on the question you asked uh, Stephen about, 
I mean, we should just try to deal with the truth, try to deal with the facts, right? And and we want to honor the full king and not pick and choose, okay? And so he wasn't he wasn't really loud about it. He certainly wasn't dogmatic or sectarian about it, but there is a truth and there's a factual history to his critique of capitalism, which is a radical one, and his embrace of democratic socialism as the path that we need to look forward. And you can see in a 1961 speech to the... Uh, uh, the, I forget the exact name, but the Negro American Labor Council, I think it was, uh, which was the uh, black focused form of the AFL-CIO. Um, he said <clears throat> that call it democracy or call it democratic socialism, but we need a better uh, a distribution of wealth for all of God's children in our country. He used the language in, in a speech to the SCLC board, said maybe we need to move towards democratic socialism. So you see in that it's not dogmatic, it's not sectarian, it's not strident, and of course he's dealing with the political limitations of the time, but at least it's honest. So whether somebody on Twitter that says, hey, this is revisionist history, talk about King and democratic socialism, or it's a, a black preacher who uh, whose work and leadership I would respect so much, we have to say, well, I hear you, but let's look at the let's look at the facts, let's look at the record, and let's honor King enough to really embrace his full legacy and carry that forward. And you alluded to this a little bit earlier, um, Stephen, um, how uh, you know, people have been fed one speech on one day. Mm -hmm. Too many of us, including folk who look like Dr. King, only know 1963, I Have a Dream. Many people don't know what Kai just said. They, they, you know, and that's why it goes viral. You know, every year about Black History Month, somebody will post a video of Dr. King saying, uh, I'm black and I'm beautiful. Everybody's shocked. Oh, he actually said that. Yeah, he said it. We saw it. Um, <laughs> when, when, when they post the speech, about the Homestead Act, when he's basically calling for reparations. People are, are shocked about that. So, I mean, it's incumbent upon us, even as African-Americans, to get to know, in Kai's words, the full king. Hmm. And I think that understanding a seminal figure that is a moral leader, that has a political theology wrapped inside of his theology, right? Like, and I don't, I don't think we always tease out that Dr. King is a political strategist who is also a practical theologian, right? Like, so he's he's infusing, you know, in this beyond Vietnam speech, right? He's talking about ways that we all can see beyond and create this new world order, this new heaven, this new earth by literally talking about the issues that are that are surmounting, right? And then that, that level of infusing the the sacred and the secular, the you know, holding the Bible in one hand and newspaper in another hand, of infusing and really challenging and offering a, a critique is actually the work of prophetic of prophetic resistance, right? And so we have too many preachers and who would like to romanticize King and, and just you know, and I don't even think King has a true pietist uh, uh, theology, right? He's, he's, he's hardly ever talking about salvation and what you know or, or something around you know this esoteric kind of ephemeral reality he's literally always talking about challenging systems and structures right. because institutional salvation is far greater than individual sort of like salvation mm -hmm. and sin that we that the, the traditional black church is now co-opted as their meta-narrative yeah 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 and and the whole prosperity piece as well more mip after this message but now, but now, Kai, let, let's let me challenge you now, because we were talking earlier about, you know, Joe Manchin and some of these other characters, the very working class um, that you 
uh, talk about in the piece. Some of that working class is in West Virginia. Uh, it's in the South, right, where they're being um, uh, pushed toward, you know, this resurgent white nationalism. But it was Dr. King that organized the South and transformed the South. So isn't a part of this figuring out a way not only to fuse, um, you know, the African-American political movement and democratic socialists, which I think will be easier <laughs> than trying to get those working class jokers who Trump somehow um, was able to get to. But I mean, that's a challenge, too. We've got to figure out how to get them to see what Dr. King was talking about in terms of race being used to convince them that they're not really poor like us. Absolutely. It's crucial. It's always been the case, uh, an effort to divide poor people and working people uh, on, on the basis of race by an elite, whether it's slaveholders uh, in the South or the big factory owners in the North or the billionaire class of today to say um, that rather than coming together to divide people and to demonize and to scapegoat, right? And they've targeted white, poor and working class people the most to say, hey, don't join with those people. Don't look at what you have in common, right? They're the problem. These immigrants are the problem. These black welfare moms are the problem, right? Always to use this racial uh, division tactic, right? Rather than keep people together and to say that they've got something more to gain, to say that the wages, the wages of whiteness, right? The benefit of that, if you stick with that, is going to be better than what you can get in this multiracial working class formation. And you can make an argument that that was true at some point, but it is not true today. It is not true today. Poor and working class white people in many parts of this country are suffering profoundly and their lives, their lifespan is getting shorter and their conditions are getting worse. And the only way forward is to come together and to understand that voter suppression and Reverend Barber does a great job talking about this is, is not just about racism, it's about class too. And it's saying that if you can keep folks from uh, voting, the people that are being targeted, it prevents the coalition that can do the things that might lift people up, that are gonna lift all of us up, whether it's Medicare for all, or whether it's a federal jobs guarantee, or it's a guaranteed minimum uh, income, or it's paid childcare, uh, or free college uh, and university. All of these things are gonna benefit all the working class, right? Um, and in some places, most of the most of the beneficiaries are gonna be poor and working class white people, most in just numerical terms, right? And uh, Heather McGee has a great metaphor in her book about the drained pool, that in some of these areas after integration, there were uh, white uh, folks in, in neighborhoods who would rather have their public pool drained so nobody could use it right. than to have it be integrated so they could share it with black and brown folks. And that, that's a sickness in the heart that we have to get at. And I think there's a healing power in King's teaching. Uh, that, that pulls us towards higher ground that can help to do that. But we also have to speak to the nuts and bolts of it is wouldn't you rather have a pool period for your kids to swim in? And I think that that message is one that we got to bring to white working class uh, and poor people across the country and do so in the context of a fusion movement that invites people in to say, we're going to get to higher ground together. He, yeah, he talked about Appalachia too. He did for sure. Absolutely. It's it was critical to the poor people's campaign. Yeah. Um, so Stephen, how do we, get this ball rolling. What are you all thinking about in terms of strategy, conversation, dialogue to, to bring this multiracial coalition in the name of, of King in democratic socialism? Sure. I, I think when we talk about, you know, infusing the democratic socialism 
or a teasing it out of the Kingy and legacy. I, I don't want to also disconnect King from his strategy of nonviolent resistance as a form of social change. And I think that's truly what I think is has to come out of this fusion movement is that strategically using nonviolent resistance as a form of social change is one of the greatest uh, resources we have as movement people in, in in this earth, right? Is that the power of collective mass mobilization. And I think we need to see this fusion coalition come together and target the filibuster. Like if that the filibuster is single-handedly the most important legislative challenge or tool or rule change that is of our time that literally stands in the gap between literally protecting the right to vote, um, uh, reforming the immigration system, uh, protecting black lives through uh, criminal justice reform, um, DC statehood, reparations, right? Like HR 40 and SR 40 would not pass without ending the filibuster. I mean, we just, we know that all of the democratic, progressive, democratic socialist ideas and policies that we would like to see enacted we can literally see happen in our lifetime and literally before 2022, if the, the, the nonviolent resistance couples with the democratic socialist fusion coalition and we emerge together to single-handedly build a coalition and the full of us. So that means, you know, brothers and sisters from the Latinx community, as well as brothers and sisters from the Black Lives Matter community, from the DREAM Act to the Justice and Policing Act coming together to say, hey, we're ready to come to Joe Manchin and, and, and Cinema's door and through nonviolent direct action and engaging in resistance in the streets to really make this a national cry. Like I was saying earlier, we have to create another Selma watershed moment. We have to create another watershed moment that would literally suggest that nonviolent resistance that is disciplined, that is strategic, that is consistent would tend to topple over the, the challenges of white supremacy that continues to hold over the United States Senate as a, as a part of this Jim Crow relic of the, of the filibuster. So whether that looks like all of us converging at the DC and recreating the Demo democracy spring, or whether that means we're going to Joe Manchin's uh, office in, in West in Charleston, West Virginia. We have to see faith leaders and civil rights leaders and and and, and immigration activists and Green New Deal activists and gun reform activists literally all putting their bodies on the lines through nonviolent resistance to end the filibuster. How has your piece, the piece you've written, been received, Kai? What kind of reactions have you gotten, even from within the movement? I've only heard uh, positive stuff uh, so far. You know, I think uh, people, um, you know, digging into it, thinking about what the implications are, reaching out with support. Um, and I think we want to continue the conversation. We didn't have a plan in terms of, hey, this is where we're going to go with this beyond trying to initiate a conversation, invite people in to really think about it. Um, but I think that's gone well so far. I'm grateful to be on with you today to continue that. And, and I think my hope is that we can encourage a, 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 conscious, a conscious embrace of it, right? So that when we're organizing, um, that we're talking about, these are these, these are these values that come together, these are these methods that come together, and this is a way we understand it. And so that if somebody's saying, oh, what's that you talking about, this crazy socialism, we'll say, I'm following in the tradition of Dr. King, right? And this is this way that we're trying to do that, right? And um, so I, I think we'll see where that goes, right? But I think uh, what Stephen is talking about is the next step in terms of putting a lot of that vision into practice, whether we call it this, say, this is what we're doing in this Kingian Democratic Socialist Initiative or not, it's what needs to be done. 
and and it speaks to the strategic dimension, which we haven't gotten into as much, is that King was really pushing us towards this fusion of grassroots organizing movements and mass militant nonviolent direct action and electoral politics and mobilizing majorities to vote and govern and really seeing how those can fit together. And it's not necessarily easy, right, as anyone uh, <clears throat> who's elected somebody, right, and been a force in that, and then done a sit-in at their office. That's not necessarily easy to hold that intention, right? But it's what has to be done, and it's very difficult to do if you don't have nonviolent discipline. And I think that this fight now to end the filibuster and open the door to progress on all these different issues for our entire coalition represents uh, a great opportunity to, to build in that direction. Yeah, yeah, it is. Folks, we invite you to go to, uh, let me see if I can put it up on the screen before we go, the uh, the piece is uh, waging uh, non uh, nonviolence, uh, and it is um, that's where it's at. Uh, wait, yeah, I'm sorry, wagingnonviolence.org. Correct, that's where it's at, and you all can uh, uh, can check it out. Uh, there it is. Um, why Kingian democratic socialism is the best path path forward for the progressive left. We invite you to go to wagingnonviolence.org and read about it and be educated. Um, our guests are absolutely right. This is a conversation that must. Uh, absolutely uh, take place. Um, we have got to get to this. And, and again, uh, you all know I'm a big proponent of Dr. King's speech uh, at the end of the march from Selma to Montgomery. And he talked mm -hmm. about uh, working class whites and working class African-Americans coming together and the ways in which we are kept deliberately divided from one another. Um, that's purposeful. And so all this stuff on January 6th, there's a there's a reason for that, because God forbid um, that all of us come together and realize uh, what our common uh, goal and agenda can be. And so I want to uh, thank my guests, uh, Reverend Stephen A. Green, uh, Brother Kai Newkirk. Um, gentlemen, you know, I'm um, with you uh, on this uh, uh, all the way. And uh, whatever I can do to be supportive, just uh, let me know. Uh, and let's try to figure out some ways to get people organized and get this all together, okay? Hey, man, thank you no, so thank much for you, having me. Thank you, Mark, for always, you know, opening your platform to be able to have these conversations with our people. And I think this is where, where it starts. We have to reimagine Dr. King's legacy. Right. You know, they have romanticized Dr. King. We've given him a holiday. We pacified him. We've we, you know, we have these parades <laughs> and call them marches, you know, but what would it look like to engage in nonviolent direct action consistently through, you know, through this level of or strategic organizing? Because I mean, what we're, what we're up against is, is a very, is a very heightened challenge after January 6th. I don't think people, you know, the, the organizing that we did in November in, in two, and, and or even this past summer is has to be transformed now that we're talking about life after January 6th. January 6th exposed the very fragility of the American democracy and that white supremacy is embedded in the highest levels of our government, right? Like this, the, 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 to, to be able to overthrow or attempt to overthrow the a democratically elected election in the, the world's strongest, alleged strongest democracy shows a very, a very, a very, a very gaping hole in the very fabric of our nation. And right. I think that we, you know, the, the, the level of, 
of of an attack that we're facing. You know, you know, we don't. You know, they're, they're talking about forming a 9/11 style commission around January 6th, and I think that needs to happen. But we're we're literally talking about people at the highest levels of our government who were operating in co, um, you know, and 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 or or non-cooperative in trying to protect or to defend or to you know resist the attack on our democracy. So this is about democracy. This is about the future of the state of our country. It's not just about king and democratic socialism. This is about the future of the of our planet, right? Which is which relies upon working people, uh, people working together to create a beloved community. So thank yeah. you again. Yeah, no, it, 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 that is where we have to go. Wagingnonviolence.org, folks, be sure to check out the piece, Why Kingian Democratic Socialism is the Best Path Forward for the Progressive Left. That's your homework assignment, everybody. All right, thank you. I want to thank again Kai Newkirk, the Reverend Stephen A. Green. Follow them on Twitter, Kai Newkirk and Green the Rev. Keep up with all they're doing, a lot more organizing going on. You going to Minneapolis, uh, Stephen? I might have to. Yeah, yeah. Man, we all we all might have to, uh, folks. We keep all especially with uh, the trial coming up at the same time. Yeah, yeah. we um we keep all we want to keep everybody who is impacted, not only by the pandemic but the police demic, mm-hmm. uh, and the pistol demic of gun violence. We want to keep everyone um, uh, lifted up and pray for protection, not just thoughts and prayers and doing nothing, uh, but pray for some real change, some real legislation, all of that. And it's it prayer happens not just with your hands folded but with your feet. Yes. And what Kai and Stephen are talking about in tradition, Dr. King, he didn't just people didn't call him Dr. King. Oh, let's just pray. He prayed with his feet. He mobilized mm-hmm. and organized. And the difference, folks, I, we have to be clear. It's more to it than just the feeling and and the myth that Stephen. That people were literally organizing and working, and and being strategic. It wasn't random. It wasn't just folk all over the place. It wasn't folk just tweet. A tweet tweeting is social media, not social movement. All right. So just tweeting up a storm. That's that's just part of it. Exactly. Being able to get in the streets. That's digital organizing, and that's angles cute and all of that. And you can do stuff, but you actually have to have butts on the ground, boots on the ground, right? Butts in seats, and that's why I I think that the model of having you know, the mass meetings, right? Well, Sunday night mass meetings. There should be more work done. We talk about this now. There should be more work done in the movement to extrapolate and extrapolate the, the, the power of the mass meetings to create the political consciousness and the spiritual power that goes into building these kinds of movements. Yeah, no, no, you, you're absolutely right. And um, tweets aren't votes. What happened in Georgia in January, folks, has to become second nature to us. We can still do better. And and we all have to vote and vote for what's in our best interest. Get to those working class folk too, Kai. Encourage them to stop voting against their own interests. All of this has to happen. But, you know, we can go on and on and on. This is just the beginning, folks. Look forward to more of these conversations. Kai, Reverend Stephen, thank you both, okay? Thank you, brother. All right, thank you both. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been Made Plain.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.